welcome to Snescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo library, three games at a time. We play them briefly, we judge them harshly, we rank them. I'm so tired of sports games. You guys, I'm, I'm just so tired right now. December 1992 has been bad for Super Nintendo games. I'm just going to say it. Anyway, uh, I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero, and I also agree, this has been a bad month for Super Nintendo games. December 1992, that is. It's been, I would say, in terms of overall quality, the worst month this system has had so far. Fortunately, that continues this time with the three games we have to discuss today. Less sports-heavy than it has been in the past few episodes, but still some sports, and we still don't have a ton to say about them, so I guess we might as well just go ahead and get into it. Luckily, we are getting close to the end of December 1992, so I say... Let's press on. Yep. And luckily, I guess we're maybe going to start out with what might be the highlight of this trio of games. Uh, we're going to talk about Gemfire. All right. Nothing makes me dread playing a non-sports game more than seeing Koei on the title screen because <laughs> I know chances are good that I'm going to be playing another tactical role-playing strategy game. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's what we're doing here. It is not exactly Romance of the Three Kingdoms, but it's fairly close. It doesn't stray too far from the standard Koei playbook. But the setting here is different. The, you know, the, the kind of setup here is quite far removed from the Chinese history stuff that the majority of the games people associate with them are. I think that that was kind of a smart move as far as making games for the Western market. So Koei, you know, they're best known for their tactical games like Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which we talked about before. I'm certain we talked about Koei then as well. They're also really famous for the Dynasty Warrior series. Which are kind of related. But yeah, like you said, this time Koei shifts from the sort of Chinese historical fiction focus to traditional Western fantasy. So I found a manual for this game online. And to hear the manual explain it, um, here's the story here. So we begin our tale in Ishmeria, a fantasy land like many Western fantasy lands and that it's, you know, ripped almost whole cloth from Middle Earth. <laughs> the land is peaceful until an evil wizard named Zimmel decides he wants to light everyone on fire and does so with the help of his pet dragon. As you do. Uh, luckily for the people of Ishmeria, a friendly sea beast named <laughs> Pastha puts out the fires and the king uses his own wizards, six in total, to magic the dragon away. They do so, but at the cost of Zemmel cursing the wizards and turning the six of them and the dragon, for some reason, into gems. The king puts these gems in a crown, which he calls Gemfire. I'll bet that's where the name of the game comes from. And uses the power of Gemfire to help the people recover from the devastation and just be a real good guy. That's great. Sadly, when it comes time for the king to pass on his crown, it turns out that his son, Esselred is a jerk and uses the crown to pillage from his own people and just generally steer them toward disaster. I can't imagine anything like that. A leader that would just steer you towards disaster at every turn? Complete fantasy. Absolutely. Could never happen. Anyway, uh, Esselred has a daughter named Robin who is good, I guess, because evil only affects every other generation there. Yeah, you know, it's it's skips. <laughs> Esselred's a boomer. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... 
Uh, one night she has a dream that the sea beast, Pasta, is all, hey, you can break the spell of gemfire and save the kingdom. That would be really cool if you did that. And she's all, whoa, that's a weird dream. I'm going to go do exactly what it told me to do. And she destroys the crown, freeing the wizards, who then just kind of scatter off into different places. But before she can free the dragon, her dad finds her and locks her in a tower because this is an early 90s video game. And, of course, there's a captured princess involved. Of course. And uh, that's pretty much where the game picks up. You take on one of several regions, um, each of which I'm assuming has, like, a different wizard and gem yeah. in their midst. Although, like, I don't even know how that works out because I thought the wizards were the gems. So I- the, the opening for the game, which I, I think is actually really good, uh, shows each of the wizards claiming one of the regional rulers to advise i assume that this is sort of the setup as you as you're talking about there i'm in a particularly bad mood from all the bad games this month um i'm just gonna say i'm gonna guess that the story as it's written in the instruction manual was handled by the localization team and they all write like children (laughs) because the heavy lifting was already done for them by tolkien so Sorry, I'm grumpy today, folks. I apologize. I'm going to balance that by saying that I actually don't think the setup here is bad. The, the setup in the game is not bad. And and the bit you get from the game itself is, you know, there's an evil king with a crown that has six wizards and a dragon in it. The, his, his daughter breaks the crown. The wizards are free, and they each set about kind of backing one of the leaders of of the region to to help overthrow the king and bring freedom to the country so they've also got to fight each other um it turns out to to kind of i guess consolidate power so that they can take on the king and that's pretty much where we get into the meat of the game which is like we were kind of alluding to not terribly different from the romance of the three kingdoms game that we talked about some episodes back you select a campaign you select a leader to play as in that campaign and then you go about growing your army uh making alliances and also fighting battles with the other regions and yeah over the course of many many hours getting stronger and you know, controlling more of the land for yourself. So there's four scenarios, I believe, in this game. And each scenario has four different warlords, I guess you could call them, who you can choose to play as. Two of them remain consistent across all four of the campaigns, but the other two are more revolving door, just kind of, they'll be different each time. The further along you are on the timeline of the overall story determines kind of determines the strength of the ultimate enemy that everybody is opposing as that kingdom sort of loses power as you go along, which is kind of interesting because that also changes the dynamics of, you know, which of the rival warlords has more power. So you can purposefully put yourself at a disadvantage if you want to by playing as a character who doesn't have as many holdings, isn't quite as established as some of the other characters. Uh, Or you can, you know, play it kind of simple and pick somebody who will be starting the campaign from a more advantageous position. I do think these games are neat. They're just very opaque, very hard to get into, and and definitely not for me. But I will say that this game, I think, is is much easier to figure out than Romance of the Three Kingdoms was. And I, I think there's a few reasons for that. One... I just think that the language around this being cribbed from traditional Western fantasy just means that, like, for people like us who grew up in the United States, that's language that's just 
more well known to us than the language of historical Chinese, you know, warring states era. Well, I guess that would be Japan. So just based on that alone, it's a little bit easier for someone like us to pick up and play. But I also just think that what everything is, is just more self-explanatory. Like the idea in Romance of the Three Kingdoms that like gold represents how much rice you can buy with X amount of gold per turn where here gold means, well, this is how much money you have. There's actually a different resource for, for food for your army that is pretty clearly laid out. It does a lot more to like kind of foreground like what the resources actually mean, like you're saying. Also, I do think that it helps that the scale of this game seems somewhat smaller than the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Like the region that you're talking about for the territory map is not as sprawling and there's not as many factions at play here. I think that it just makes it more easy to kind of see what the through line is and where kind of the end goal is for whatever you're you're trying to do. Yeah, and I also think that there's just less complexity in how many options that you have. Like when you're doing a, a diplomatic mission, you don't have like all of the things that Romance of Three Kingdoms have. Like, hey, do you want to marry one of your lord's daughters off to another lord in this area as sort of a... a to create an alliance or whatever, yeah. Yeah, so you don't have quite as much of that going on. Everything's a little bit more straightforward, which I think is nice. One thing that's kind of confusing to me, given you know the, the story of the game and where we're at, is that you can only form one alliance at a time. Uh-huh. And forming a second alliance will actually end your alliance that you had previously. Which, given that ultimately everyone kind of wants to you know defeat the same big bad. That's a strange choice, I feel like. There's also advisors. You can pick one of four advisors uh, before a campaign begins, and they will kind of give you some advice. And what's interesting here is that some of them, I think, will encourage you to act a little bit more diplomatically than others, which is kind of a neat thing. Um, I do really like the idea that this game is trying to push the idea that it isn't all just about conquering, but it is also about diplomacy as well, which is why that whole thing about only being able to form one alliance at a time is equally disappointing, because I think it would be really interesting if, you know, you could get to a win state by just, you know, getting everybody to align behind you or, you know, with without violence. That actually carries on to kind of an interesting thing, which is that I, I feel like in contrast to Romance of the Three Kingdoms, this game was very quick to get me into the like combat mode i feel like in the romance of the three kingdoms combat was one thing you could do but it didn't really seem that focal to the experience whereas in this essentially one of the first things that you can do in any scenario is attack the adjacent territory and then it does it does shift into a kind of turn-based strategy game mode like very light version of like arc the lad sort of uh combat mode where you're moving units around on kind of like a chessboard grid doing damage to each other and and stuff like that on the whole i i think that this is a much more successful game accessibility wise than romance of the three kingdoms was i think there's still a significant learning curve here but i could definitely see myself figuring this one out long before i would ever have the patience to figure out 
Romance of the Three Kingdoms. This is still a game that is for a very specific type of gamer, and that type of gamer is not me. <laughs> um, if you think you might have an appetite for this sort of thing, but have merely dipped your toes into the genre, this seems like a far better jumping off point than the murky and uncertain waters of Romance of the Three Kingdoms. It is also, to be fair, even more so than like an RPG, this is not well suited to what we do on this show. It's possible that one of us could just like get the bug and decide to spend 15 hours playing this game, but the way we do this show doesn't really account for that or give us time to do that for the show. That probably affects our, our ability to, to judge these um, in a particularly in-depth way. And with that, I guess, uh, do we want to take a look at the list, see where this one might go? Sure, let's let's do it. I mean, it shouldn't surprise anyone. I'm already thinking that this goes above Romance of the Three Kingdoms 2, which is currently our number 110 game. I think it could go up probably a few places from there. Yeah, like I think this is more interesting than something like... I don't know, just to name some games that are above that. Kablooey, Cyberspin, or Gary Kitchen, Super Battle Tank. This is probably a more functional game at the end of the day than, say, like, Clue is on the Super Nintendo. I think that's true. You know, despite the fact that, again, you know, you're going to be spending some time with other documentation to really get a handle on this game. And you're probably going to need to go outside the instruction manual for a little bit of that as well. For one thing, the instruction manual, I found uh, uh, an error where a couple of times it references pushing a C button to do something. Uh, the Super Nintendo controller does not have one of those. This game probably came out on the Genesis as well, right? I think it did, yeah. I wonder if they just reprinted the manual from the Genesis for both, you know, console ports of the game. <laughs> for parts of it, yeah, I think that's exactly what they did. You know what, I would give this game an edge over something like, say, Captain Novelin at 102. I don't know, do, you, do you think this one breaks the 100 mark? Do you think this is better than Bulls v. Blazers NBA playoffs at number 100? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it is. I think that Bulls v. Blazers is kind of a technically hobbled game that isn't much fun to play, whereas, like, this game, even though it's not really our kind of game, and it would take a lot longer to kind of, like, get into the meat of it, I think this game is better put together than that one. And for its audience, I think it's a better game than Bulls v. Blazers was. Um, then we got Word Trist at 99. What do you think of that one? That's kind of a little tougher. I, I have some issues with kind of the fundamental thinking behind that game, but I do think that it is more or less accomplishing what it sets out to do. I, I don't necessarily think that Gemfire is that great aesthetically, but on the other hand, it, it probably is more well put together production than Wordtress. Uh, maybe, maybe a slight edge. I'd say maybe it gets a slight edge on Wordtress. After that, we've got Bart's Nightmare at number 98. And Bart's Nightmare, I mean, let's just be frank. Like, those games are almost completely across the board just a mess. No, no amount of research is going to fix what's wrong with those. <laughs> okay, well, here's a block of games that I think maybe we can look at as, as sort of a, a good comparison point. The ceiling might be somewhere in here. Going up a little further, starting at NBA All-Star Challenge and going up to the Chess Master at 92. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of looking at the Chess Master because, you know, you kind of compared the battle scenarios to chess, which I, I think is a, an appropriate comparison. I wish the game, at the very least, you know, in-game wouldn't explain how the different characters in those battle modes work. That was an annoying aspect of it, for sure. You know, like, you've got an archer. I assumed that, like, I could hit somebody with my archer who's just in line of sight regardless of distance, but 
that's not true. What it seems like the archer can do is that they can attack somebody on the other side of a wall from them. And building walls is a thing that some of your characters can do in that mode. So that makes sense. But that's not intuitive, really, is it? Yeah, so maybe this one goes below the chess master. Okay. And maybe it goes just below the chess master. I don't even remember World League Soccer at this point. It was not a great soccer game. I mean, clearly it's a, yeah, 93. <laughs> given that we had better soccer games to compare it to, it really didn't show that well. So, I'd say I'd be pretty comfortable with putting Gemfire just below the chess master. So congratulations, Gemfire, managing to survive the fact that we are not the kind of gamers for it to make it to our number 93 position on the list. Honestly, like anything from this month, making it into the top 100 is it probably means it fares better than most. So <laughs> right. Yeah. Well done. Well done. All right. Well, hey, speaking of soccer games and having better ones to compare a soccer game to, let's uh, no, actually, you know what? Um, sorry, let's not do that. Let's um, let's do that other one first. Let's let's talk about gods. Let's talk about gods. Let's talk about this muscly man that looks like he is like a pill bug that somebody has drawn big beefy arms and legs on. Let's talk about gods. Let's talk about who made gods first. So this is a, another Mindscape published game. I kind of assumed this was going to be another god sim like Populous, and the fact that it's a 2D platformer instead makes me really shocked that Nintendo let Mindscape get away with calling this game gods on their system, that they didn't make them change the title, given Nintendo's notorious tendency for censorship where any sort of religious or spiritual icons are concerned. But uh, my, my theory about that is that because this game deals specifically with like Greek mythology instead of any, anything that looks remotely Christian, I think that kind of gets it a pass. Because if you think about stuff like, you know, Nintendo's own Kid Icarus, or, or, or really a lot of stuff from this era, like, I think that, like, if, you, if you're if calling something gods, it, you know, it, it sort of has to be, you know, about, about, like, the Olympian gods in order to be seen as, like, completely secular. Um, and I guess, you know, in fairness, like, anybody who would be put off by the title gods is probably just not playing video games. Yeah, this game uh, comes to us from the Bitmap Brothers. Uh, they were founded in Wapping, East London. Great name for a city. Wapping. Wapping. I say that, Golf, you've been to Wapping lately. Anyway, uh, they were founded in 1987 by Eric Matthews, Steve Kelly, and Mike Montgomery, because who needs last names? Two of their earliest games were the 1988 scrolling shooter Xenon, and the 1988 futuristic sports sim Speedball, which would actually see a couple of sequels in later years. Most of their games would, unsurprisingly, come out on computer systems popular in Europe, like the Amiga. Uh, some of uh, Bitmap Brothers' other games include isometric action game Cadaver in 1990, Magic Pockets in 1991, which made it out on the Genesis but sadly wouldn't come to the SNES, and Chaos Engine, which would come to the SNES under the title Soldiers of Fortune, so we will get to it. 
Despite their early success, which included founding their own publishing arm in 1991 called Renegade Software, by the time the aughts came around, many key members of Bitmap Brothers, including some of their founders, would move on to other projects. It's not entirely clear what happened to the company. Uh, Wikipedia claims that they are defunct as of 2006, and their website is archived. Some of their classic games received updates on modern systems in the early 2010s, and according to a Eurogamer article from last year, Rebellion now has the rights to Bitmap Brothers back catalog. And uh, you were also saying that apparently Gods has come out on Switch? Yeah, it's come out on everything, actually. Uh, Gods Remastered came out uh, in 2018 for PCs. And then for the Xbox in December 2019, and then the Switch and PS4 on March 29th of this very year, 2020. <laughs> yeah, you could go and and buy yourself a shiny new HD remastered copy of this game if you wanted to right now. I cannot imagine this game having too many favors done to it by being in HD, but... It's already so shiny, <laughs> it, it could get shinier. I guess so. So yeah, um, Gods, this is kind of a messy game. It works, but it can be really tough to get a handle on early on. Um, your character is rendered without any means of attack at first, though a quick run to the right from your starting position will net you throwing knives from that point forward, and you'll never be unarmed after that. But like, why even do that? It's, it's very strange. So just to, to back up a tiny bit, this is a side-scrolling action platformer, almost a run-and-gun shooter in some ways. Uh, your, your weapons are all projectiles that you shoot very quickly by having your beefy man, who apparently is supposed to be Hercules, though I never got any sense of that from the game itself, throwing knives and daggers and stuff at, at enemies. I, I don't know why they don't start him with a weapon, though, given that you get it almost immediately. The entire game sort of revolves around basic platforming challenges, throwing various sharp objects at strange alien-like creatures that feel very out of place for a game that's trying to go for an ancient Greek aesthetic. It's really weird. Everything about this game's look is is extremely odd to me. And you're also solving puzzles, kind of. Really, you're just activating levers, which uh, can deactivate traps to provide safe passage and open new paths to you. Also, you may be presented with multiple levers and just have to guess which one will open a door and which ones will just spawn even more traps into the level. The game doesn't really do anything to actually signpost what each lever will do. So calling these puzzles would be inaccurate, honestly. Like, there's no subtle nod to, like which one you need to use. It really just comes down to guessing and later memorization. Pretty much. It's just things to fiddle with, basically, to open your path. A lot of times you also need some kind of a key to make the lever open a door when when you, you flip it. You do have to pick up items using what I feel is a pretty awkward mechanic where you have to kneel down in front of the key press what is also uh, under normal circumstances the attack button and um then then press it again to move the cursor on your inventory bar at the bottom of the screen off of the item you just selected. Otherwise, you'll drop it again. I'm guessing this whole setup is a relic from the game's European computer origins, but the SNES controller has enough buttons to make this 
much more easily manageable, and this whole mechanic should have been retooled. And honestly, like, if you were going to be too lazy to do that, you shouldn't have even released this game on the SNES, as far as I'm concerned. I think it would have made the game materially better to just have a different action button for picking up items and, and hitting levers than just using the same button that you, you use to attack. This game is also just merciless. There's no sort of knockback or invincibility frames when you take damage. So, say, standing in the proximity of one of the game's many traps will just cause you to drain your health meter very quickly and lose a life. Enemies also spawn a lot, not endlessly, and there's actually kind of an interesting mechanic going on. I didn't get to spend enough time with the game to really try and figure out how this works, but apparently the game has some sort of built-in difficulty adjustment where certain actions denoting proficient play will actually cause the game to get more difficult by having more enemies spawn in than normally would. That's an interesting thing. It's not really something we've seen a lot of on the SNES. Yeah, no, it's a cool idea. I just wish I liked the overall game design enough to be able to appreciate that. The Bitmap Brothers themselves... um, The folks who worked at Bitmap Brothers. Maybe they thought of themselves as the actual Bitmap Brothers. You think, like, that was how they introduced themselves? You know, like, if they ever go to a a party together, like, oh, I am such and such, and I'm such and such, and we're the Bitmap Brothers! (laughs) But in any case, you know, one of them, you know, has been on record saying that they tend to make their games more difficult because they don't find easy games very fun. So I think some of the stuff in this game can be chalked up to, okay, they're just trying to make the game more challenging. Other decisions like the, the poor mechanics involved in picking up items and the sorry state of the puzzle solving in air quotes that they're trying to put forth here are pretty inexcusable no matter what they were going for. trying to put into words the issue i have with this game's overall concept of like level design on the one hand i kind of admire the fact that it's got these really dense packed levels that have you know a lot of different things to fiddle with and secrets to find upgrades and powers and all that i i like that in concept but i think what happens here is that because the levels are are so dense and tightly wound and you're kind of just doing the same things without much dif- in the way of differentiation, you know, extremely specific routes you have to take through various platforming challenges. And of course, the sort of switch puzzles that we've been sort of saying were not that great. It never really feels like you're playing through anything that has a progression. It feels like it's just the same few moments repeated over and over again. One thing I did kind of notice about the game that um, you know I think is cool in theory, but ultimately they don't really use this in the way that they probably should have is like the idea that you do have an inventory and you can you know grab certain things, but all of your items get automatically used, and if it's something that like refills your health or something like that, it, it's going to get used the minute you touch it. So it's not like it actually goes into your inventory for you to use later, which is kind of good because the inventory system, as we've already said, is a mess, and I wouldn't want to have to you know fiddle with that any more than absolutely necessary. But it also means that like if you get something like the item that spawns a shopkeeper who will approach you and then you know offer to sell you items 
Um, you can't save that for later. It always is going to get used immediately, which is a shame. And then you're offered all of these items that you can purchase, but you have to use them immediately. So you can't save any health items for later either. And it's just kind of like, why present these things as inventory items when they're really just pickups? And I wish that the whole mechanic around inventory were better managed so that it would make sense to, say, be able to hold on to a health item and use it when you need it, or, you know, even have it get automatically used when your health reaches a certain level, perhaps. But yeah, none of that's an option here. You know, I feel like it is probably not in general good practice to say, oh, well, I wish this game was this other game. But in a lot of ways, I think that the stuff that this game sort of dresses up with the inventory system is not really very different from, like, the way that, like, Castlevania works. It's just much more sort of obnoxious because it has this veneer of this kind of, like, adventure game or, like, RPG-ish you know, way of, of collecting and using items and exploring levels that it doesn't really need. I don't know. Are we ready to go to the list on this one? I think so. Yeah, let's do it. So, you know, I, I'm actually looking a little bit higher than I was initially thinking because, uh, you know, like I look at something like Super Adventure Island and that game is so threadbare that I kind of want to elevate this game above it just because like, I don't know. Do you, do you feel like that's fair to, to put gods above Super Adventure Island, or do you think I'm being too generous there? I certainly think it's a more ambitious game than Super Adventure Island. I basically enjoyed the experience of playing Super Adventure Island more than I enjoyed this one, but it was about as basic as it could be with with the concepts that it was using. I think I want to give this one some extra credit just, just because of that. And I also think that there's certain aspects of this game that I wasn't a huge fan of, like, for example, the extreme difficulty, that I can, ex- I can actually respect that in this game. For a lot of games that from this time period, or especially from the, the NES era, that were really difficult, the main reason why they were really difficult was because the publisher didn't want people to get very far in the game if they rented it. So they would, you know, do things to kind of artificially increase the difficulty level. And I do not have the sense that the difficulty in this game was put in cynically in that way. I genuinely do think that the people who made this game just liked games that were like this. Yeah, I'd say let's go up. I think I'd put this above F1 ROC. Why don't we jump up to like James Bond Jr. at number 80? What do you think of that comparison? On balance, I probably would actually rather play Gods than James Bond Jr. The difficulty in that game mostly comes from the fact that it's not very well designed. You know, this game, at least I, I think you could get good at this game and enjoy it. Here's something I will say that I, I appreciate about Gods is that... Everything is so densely packed in this game that I feel like even with the game over, I can quickly get back to, you know, like where I was before and, you know, get better at learning from my mistakes in certain areas where James Bond Jr.'s levels are just more sprawling a lot of the time. I think I would go back to Gods before I would go back to James Bond Jr. And then right above that at 79, we've got Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally. It's a more ambitious and somewhat better put together game than James Bond Jr., which is why we ranked it above that. But I also think that it has some kind of pretty suspect design decisions that seem seem like more fundamental issues than the ones with gods. So I, I'd maybe I'd maybe jump up above Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally with this one again. So let's see, we've got Raiden Trad at 78, Super Bowling at 77. 
Um, I think I could easily put this above right end trad. Super Bowling, I might want to have a conversation first. I don't know. I think Super Bowling is very successful at being a fun bowling game. And I also think it has some some fun presentation stuff going on. That seems like a work of genuine quality that came out very well, even though it is a bit simple. But on balance, I think that I think this might be where gods stops for me okay yeah i was looking up the list and i was just trying to think of like where ceiling might be and i saw prince of persia there and it's like oh maybe there's a conversation there but honestly we probably don't even need to go there i think i'm okay putting this below super bowling so actually not a terrible showing for gods uh hercules not quite going from zero to hero but you know making it into the middle of the pack so you know good for him yeah so gods is now our new number 78 All right, well, I guess now we have to talk about that other game. So uh, this is Goal. This is Goal, with an exclamation point. Not really sure it earns the exclamation point. Waste of an exclamation point. So, yeah, this is a soccer game. And, um, yeah, let's let's go ahead and talk about the history first. We don't even need to. I didn't bother. Um, this one's made by Jalico and Tose, who we've definitely talked about before and we will talk about again. I'll be honest with you. So, like, here, this is my experience of playing Goal. You know, I booted it up. I was hoping that this would be a decent game be- just because, in general, we've liked soccer games on the system. Sure. I don't think we've had a soccer game that was bad on the system yet. I started it up, and the game immediately just, like, drops me into, you know, after going through some options, you know, onto the field where I can only see two players in a very small section of the field. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what's going on. I'm not even entirely sure which guys are my guys because I'm only able to control one of them at a time. And it's not always the one that I would think I should be controlling at any given time. And I don't get a good look at what, you know, like what jerseys my sprites are wearing before I get dropped into the game. I also don't know how it controls. The controls aren't really feeling incredibly intuitive like they have been in some other soccer games. So I looked for an instruction manual. Did not find one for the SNES version. Uh, looked up game facts. There is no fact for the SNES version. There was, however, a question that was asked. The only question on game facts. That question was, how do you control the Super Nintendo version of Goal? There were no answers. It's pretty strange. Like, this game uses a kind of, like, tilted, top-down perspective. Not really quite, like, a three-quarters thing, but there is a little bit of, like, a sense of, like, depth to the, the field. And it is pretty zoomed in. One thing that I thought was very strange about this game is that given that there is a a pretty zoomed in perspective, a radar that shows you the the overall field and where all the players are positioned on it, it seems like it would be pretty important. And there actually is one in this game, but it's turned off by default. Like there's an options menu that you see before you actually start a match. And turning the radar on is one of the options there. And if you're going to play this game, you absolutely should do it because I don't really see how this game's field is comprehensible if you don't do that. Yeah, it is absolutely necessary to have that because you're only ever going to see a little bit of the field and probably only a handful of the players on that field at any given time. So most of the time, like if you need to pass the ball, you're not going to actually see the player on the screen who you're going to be passing to. So yeah, yeah, that radar is mandatory. And the fact that it's disabled by default 
is ridiculous. I think this game is really bad. <laughs> I don't know that I think it's it's one of the worst games we've played, but it is the least fun soccer game we've played, I think it's fair to say. There's already at least three really good, competent versions of soccer on the system, and Jalico just thought that they could just put this out there like you're, they're just going to fool anybody? <laughs> the game also came out, I guess, on the NES and a bunch of other things. I kind of wonder how different this is from the NES version, because it's not graphically that great. It feels like the the controls could take better use of the Super Nintendo controller. Like, there's a couple of different options for, you know, shooting and passing, but it never really felt intuitive or good. And I wish there was, I, as far as I could tell, there was not a way to manually switch which player you're using to the one that's closest to the ball. Yeah, I mean, if there is, we'll, we'll never know. <laughs> it just doesn't really seem to work as well as it as it should. And that's kind of a shame, really, because, you know, this has a standard exhibition match mode and a tournament mode where you can use all of the different uh, European and, like, South American teams. You know, there's some okay stuff here. I actually like the music. It, it sounds sort of like the music from a... Uh, like a highlight reel from like an early 90s sports telecast. I've dinged a lot of sports games for just not having music at all. So I, I enjoy that there is some, some fun, kind of appropriate sounding music here, but I just don't think this is a very fun soccer game, and I wouldn't recommend this one over the other soccer games that we've played so far. I'll be honest, I, I want to maybe just say, let's just put this right above Bill Lane Beer's Combat Basketball and be done with it. Like, I'd, I just want to be done with this one. <laughs> I mean, I don't have strong feelings about this game. I don't think that it would be out of place there, given that just a couple places above Bill Lane Beer's Combat Basketball, we've got WWF Super WrestleMania and David Crane's Amazing Tennis. Yeah, if you want to put it right above Bill Lambeer, uh, right below Gun Force, I am good with it. If you've got a good argument for this game going above any of those other games, like I'm, I'm totally willing to hear that. I mean, it would definitely help if I remembered what Gun Force was, but I don't. Yeah, it's another scrolling shooter, I think. <laughs> Wasn't it? Or wait, was that that really bad Contra ripoff? Oh, yes, you're right. That was the bad Contra ripoff. Oh, you know what? This game can go above that, actually. So right below Super WWF Super, Super WrestleMania... A game that I thought was bad, but I found more playable than this one. So, uh, congratulations, sort of, goal. You're our new number 123 game, and you have just barely made it out of the bottom 10. So, good job. I wanted to spend as little time with that game as possible. I'm just so fed up with all these middling to bad sports games right now. So, anyway, we've only got one more for this year, I think, and then... And then we get to move on to other stuff. So, uh, yeah, so next time on the show, we're going to be talking about Pro Quarterback. You know what? I mean, I may not even play this game. I may not even play this game. I might just watch a long play of it because I'm just going to assume it's garbage right now, given all the other sports games we've played these past couple weeks. Because, again, I'm just that tired right now. Anyway, we've got two games that I'm more optimistic about as well. We've got Pushover, which, from the looks of it, looks like a, sort of a cross between Lemmings and Dominoes, so I, I'm curious. It's an ocean game, so I'm not optimistic about it, but we'll see. Yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, we've got 
Magical Quest starring Mickey Mouse, which is a Capcom Disney game. And I that one I think we could safely be kind of optimistic about. There are uh, quite a few Capcom Disney games and almost all of them are good. So I would I, I've got my fingers crossed for that one. I'm not familiar with the game itself at all, but I do hope it lives up to that reputation. All right. Well, folks, I guess uh, we've had our fun. Now it is time to get serious. And, you know, I, I don't want to drag this one out too long today. Uh, except to say Black Lives Matter, they still matter even when it's not trending on Twitter. And we haven't brought that up on these segments in the past couple weeks. And, you know, I don't want to be like all those other folks who just kind of forget about that stuff. So Black Lives Still Matter, let's not forget that, that that's a big reason why these protests are still going on. Further evidence of why these need to happen, the police officer who murdered Mike Brown way back in, um, what was it, 2013 in Ferguson, Missouri? The murder of Mike Brown actually happened in 2014. They, they won't be pressing charges against him. It was an, I just saw on my Twitter timeline today. Um, why on earth it took this long to even make that decision is anybody's guess. But yeah, he won't be uh, charged with anything for murdering that kid. And, uh, and that's disgusting. That, among many, many other reasons, are why these protests are going to keep happening and need to keep happening. That's all I got for today. Do you have anything? Please, if you can, support your your USPS delivery service. Yes. We need them. They are a public service, and they should remain such. That's what I've got this week. Thank you for, for bringing that up. All right, folks, that is going to do it for us for today. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, I'm Steampunk Link. I'm M Zero. I'll try to be in a better mood next time. Play it loud. Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoaxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoaxe.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com.